title of our lesson. Truth is the glue holding the body together. Ephesians, the fourth chapter and verse 25. So we just read just one verse this morning from Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And the reason for that is because I really wanted to kind of bear down, take a look at that particular verse and help us to come to a better understanding uh, of what Paul has to say there in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25 when he talks about speaking the truth to one another, each to his neighbor, and neighbor in that particular context I believe is talking about other Christians, members of the body. And then he says the reason why to do that is because we are members of one another. So, if I get this to advance... As we take a look at this this morning, truth is essential, and we're going to make that point hopefully. Speak truth to one another, and because we are members of one another. So we're going to take a look at truth is the glue, and then we're going to talk, take a look at some Old Testament and New Testament examples of truth when it was not applied, why truth is sometimes avoided, and then apply truth to preserve the body. Truth is the glue. Ephesians 4 and verse 25. But I want you to think with me for just a moment. As Paul works towards that point that he makes in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter 1 and about verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. That you might come to know the hope of his calling. And the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints. I pray you'll come to understand. Ephesians chapter 2 and about verse 5. We were dead in our sins, Paul says, but he made us alive together. Ephesians chapter 3 and about verse 10. That God's plan, that God's manifold wisdom might come to be known through the church. That when the world looks at us, Christians. They come to understand, they come to see God's plan unfolding. Ephesians chapter 4 and about verse 4, there is one body. Verse 5, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And then, in verse 25, put away falsehood. Speak truth, each one to his neighbor. Why? Because we're members of one another. And that's the point that Paul has been building to. Speak truth. I want you to get this concept that truth is the nucleus of this atom that we call Christianity. That's what everything revolves around, is what Paul is trying to get us to see. Truth is essential. Now I'm going to give you a couple illustrations this morning as we get into this, and we think about other times when truth is essential. Application just from life. When there is a common truth that is understood, and everything revolves around it, but you can see that's where the application is being made. Now, this may not strike you as exactly the appropriate <laughs> application or illustration for this application, I should say. But stick with me. I hope it works. <laughs> I always say these illustrations. I hope they work. We've all heard of NASCAR, haven't we? <laughs> NASCAR is probably one of the most popular sporting events in America today. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago that they once again kind of opened up, and they were the ones that had stands or fans in the stands, weren't they? NASCAR. First time I've ever experienced NASCAR was in Ontario, California. That track is no longer there, I believe. I believe it now it's in Fontana. Is it not? NASCAR. Let me give you a little interesting, I think, information about NASCAR. These cars are all set to certain specifications. 
3,400 pounds. That's car, that's driver, and that's fuel when they hit the track. No more. 3,400 pounds. 208 inches long. 76.5 inches wide. 53.5 inches high. Four-speed transmissions over 800 horsepower. 170 to 180 miles an hour in the corners. Over 200 miles an hour in the straightaways. Inches from one another as they fly around that track. It is mechanical engineering. It's chemical engineering. It's aerodynamics. It is man and machine and it all is rolled into mind and skill and practice and precision, speed that is executed at dangerously high levels. And you know what is one of the most very important aspects of that kind of racing? It's the pit stop. It's the pit stop. Five guys wait on the back side of a wall. And when that car comes flying down pit row, it stops in a 29-foot space exactly where it's designated. And at the moment that it stops, five guys come flying over and around that wall, carrying tires and tools. And in split seconds, a jack goes under, with one pump, the entire side of the car goes up, two tires come off, two tires go on, and they go around to the other side, and they do exactly the same thing. And at the same time, there is a guy with a fuel can that is dumping fuel in, and the crew chief is talking to the driver. He's already been communicating, but he's telling him, the car's a little tight, the car's a little loose. We're going into the corners a little high. The back end seems to want to come around as I'm accelerating out of the curve. And if that's the case, then the crew chief is telling one of the mechanics to slide underneath that thing, take a wrench, and adjust so it tightens that car up or it loosens that car up. The jack goes down. The can goes out. Somebody slaps the side of the car. The back tire smoke, and he's back out on the track. And it's all done. 17 seconds. 17 seconds. Pit crews. They're famous. They're well paid. And they're sought after. And in the off season, they practice and practice and practice. Because you know what they're after? They're after 15 seconds. Because two seconds out on that racetrack, traveling at those speeds, means the difference of a little over 200 yards. Do you know what 200 yards means <laughs> on a NASCAR racetrack? 200 yards can mean the difference of you just got the checkered flag or boys load the car put it on the trailer and we'll try again next week. 200 yards, two seconds, makes all that difference. But you know one of the things that is absolutely essential for all that to work? Truth. Truth. The owner provides everything they need for that team. The crew chief knows everything about racing and about performance and about cars and about drivers and about mechanics. And the driver, he knows how that car performs. And he has honed his skills. And that pit crew, they rely on what the crew chief says, 
what the driver communicates and then they care for that machine. Precision. But each and every one of them has got to be absolutely truthful. There's no hedging. I got to know exactly. Because that's what makes it work. Compared to the rest of the race, 17 seconds seems pretty minute. But in that 17 seconds, it's when all of that comes together. Each and every element is important. Each and every element is critical. And this is where all those elements touch each other. And when it all comes together, it's a masterpiece. It is amazing. Now let me ask you, can you see a metaphor for Christianity anywhere in there? <laughs> I hope so, because that was my big illustration for the day. I've got another one that goes along with it, though. In Ephesians 4, in verse 25, for three chapters, Paul has been writing about God through Christ has made us acceptable and how he brought all things together in Jesus Christ and how he has redeemed us and how he has reconciled us to one another in one body, Jew and Gentile. And for three chapters, Paul has written doctrine explaining God's plan through Christ. And now in chapter 4, he makes the application. This is how it applies. Speak truth one to another. And why is that? Because you are members of one another. That's what makes it work. And you're on the same team. That's what he's saying. God has given everything necessary. And what he is saying is that God wants you on his team. But God also wants you to know he's the owner. <laughs> and he has a philosophy about how you race. And so Paul's saying, here's the doctrine. Here's the way it is. Now you've got to be truthful with one another. Because that's the glue that holds this body together. Here's the other illustration. Legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi. You've heard of him, right? Green Bay Packers. Vince Lombardi used to get the team together every year. Now think about this for a moment. These are guys that are play, now playing at the highest level. But they have played football since they were little guys. And they've come up through high school and they've come up through college and they have made it to the professional ranks. They know football. <laughs> but every year he would get them together and at the beginning of, season, at the beginning of camp, he would stand before them and he would take a football and hold it up in front of him and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. You might think, huh, it's kind of a strange way to begin. But what he wanted them to know was this. The same thing that Paul wanted them to know in Ephesians 4 just before verse 25. I want you to put off the old man, verse 22. I want you to put on the new man, what I'm going to teach you, verse 24. And then I want you to speak truth to one another because that's what's going to hold us together. And so Vince Lombardi would say, gentlemen, this is a football. This is what holds us together. 
No matter how hard you get hit, you hang on to that football. You learn to sacrifice for that football. If anybody ever tries to take it away, you fight to get it back. And you keep in mind that you can't score without it. The only way you win is with it. Gentlemen, this is a football. That's what ties us together. That pit crew, this is when it all comes together and you put it into practice. And Paul says, speak the, <laughs> speak the truth to one another. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, in about verse 14, when Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God, you know where he starts? Gird your waist with truth. When he writes to Timothy over in second, or First Timothy, the fourth chapter, and he tells him, do not let anyone despise your youth. Be an example in word. Truth. Timothy, you want to have integrity? You want people to know they can count on you? It's truth, Timothy. That's what's important. It's important in life. And it's important in relationships. You want your marriage to work? Your spouse has got to know you tell them the truth. You want your kids to listen to you? You got to tell them the truth. You want your boss? You want your neighbors? They got to know that what you say is the truth. You want your fellow Christians to count on you? They got to know that you're truthful. As a congregation, my integrity to you is important. Your integrity to me is important. Your integrity to one another is important. That's the glue that holds us together. Paul gave an illustration in 1 Corinthians the 12th chapter and, in 1, and Romans the 12th chapter when he talked about the body being made up of various members. You recall that? Can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? Or can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? And so he uses the body as an illustration. But I want you to think along these lines also. Your body is honest with you. Take your hand and lay it on the stove when the burner's on. How long does it take your hand to honestly tell your nerves to get a message up to the brain, to send a message back down to the muscle to get it off the burner? Why? It's just one member. It's part of the body. And if you're honest with one another, you know what you preserve? Not only the member... You preserve the body. I preserve me. So I'm interested in the member. So we take a look around, right? Is there a hand that's laying on a hot stove? Maybe we need to help them get it off, right? Is there someone that is hungry that we don't know about? Someone that is hurting that we need to know about? Because that's how we preserve the body. So it's truth that is essential to not only preserve the members but to preserve the body. And Paul in Ephesians 4, that's what he's talking about. Let each one speak to his neighbor. That's other Christians in that context. 
Why? Because we're members of the same body. Now I'll give you a couple examples from the Old Testament and then one from the New Testament. Genesis, the 12th chapter, and I'll just read verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't you love those verses? (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Because every time we read that, we think about this is kind of the beginning of the unfolding of God's plan and how through Abraham he was going to call him and he was going to make of him a great nation and that through that nation he would bring the Messiah, the one who was going to bless all people. And Abram, we come to know better as Abraham, he holds that place, father of the faithful. I'll read to you from verse 10 through verse 16 as you think about God's call and and Abraham. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt he said to Sarai his wife indeed I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Think about that. There's a famine. We better go on down to Egypt. And as they approach, oh, by the way, you know, there's a real chance... I could be in danger down here. So this is what I want you to do. You tell them, you're my sister. That way they'll spare me. They'll take you. (laughs) Sarah's like, what's this plan? I have to be honest with you. Sometimes when I read these stories, I pick this up. And I look at the front. I go, yeah? It says Holy Bible right there. <laughs> then I go back to reading that story. It's like, this story doesn't seem all that holy, but it's in the Bible. And so what did Abram do? And how many verses has it been since God called him, blessed him, told him, if anyone curses you, I will curse them. And through you, I'm going to make a great nation and bring one who will bless all the nations of the earth. Six verses. Abram takes a look at Egypt. Looks a little threatening to me. And so what's he do? He just sacrificed the truth, didn't he? Well, I'll tell you what. You tell them that you're my sister. You kind of have to keep in mind. God just called Abram. He's got a lot of work to do with Abram. He's got a lot of work to do on Abram. Abram doesn't know yet Ephesians 5 like we do, does he? Husbands, Love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Abram's looking at this and going, this one's on you, Sarah. 
Abram doesn't know yet. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways and He will guide your footsteps. Abram just hasn't gotten to that point yet, has he? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Can you imagine when they came for Sarai? We have seen this woman that is with you. She's beautiful. And you said she's your sister. So we would like to take her to Pharaoh's house. But we'll give you a donkey, a camel, an ox, a sheep. And Abram says, See you, Sarah. Can you imagine that? And there goes your wife. Verse 17. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken you, taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. <laughs> what do you think that conversation was like as they rode away from Pharaoh's house? <laughs> well, sir, I tell me. What's the decorations like in there? <laughs> and Sarai's like, I'll show you decorations. <laughs> and that better never happen again. Genesis chapter 20. And verse 1. And Abram journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now watch verse 2 through 7. Now Abraham, and I want to point out something, the time you get to chapter 20, it's no longer Abram and Sarai. Now it's Abraham and Sarah. And God wants you to know, He wanted them to know, that when you journey with me that when you travel with me that when you're on my team and we start to do things my way your identity is going to change but he's still working on Abraham verse 2 now Abraham said of Sarah his wife she is my sister and Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister, and she even herself said, she is my, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and my innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. Once again, Abraham feels threatened. And once again, what happens to the truth? He abandons it. And not only does he abandon it again, but now what does Sarah do? She goes along with it. 
You ever seen that happen? But let me ask you. Does that make Sarah innocent? No. She's held accountable for herself. Just like Abraham. And oh, we might look at that and say, well, it wasn't a total lie. Because if you look at the genealogy, in fact, if you look a a little bit later in the same chapter, Abraham and Sarah actually shared the same father. Different mother. And so when they said, well, she's my sister, it's kind of a half-truth. He's my brother. That's kind of a half-truth. But here's the total truth. It was deception. And in Galatians, the sixth chapter, the Apostle Paul writes, God is not mocked. (laughs) For whatsoever a man sows, this he shall also reap. It's still deception. Genesis, the 37th chapter. I won't read a lot of this. I'll just kind of tell you about what takes place there. There's a man by the name of Jacob. There was Abram, or Abraham. There was Isaac. Then there was Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. One of which is his favorite. I think most of you probably know that's Joseph. While Joseph is a teenager, he starts to have these dreams. And he goes and he tells his brother, and then he tells his mother and his father about how symbolically they are bowing down to him. They don't take kindly to that. And on one occasion, while the brothers are out in the field, he sends Joseph out, this is the first time, early in Genesis 37, to check on his brothers, and Joseph comes back and gives a bad report. Well, you're already your dad's favorite. The brothers are kind of catching on to this, and now you're snitching on your brothers. So just a little bit later in Genesis 37, Jacob once again sends Joseph this time to check on his brothers, but they see him coming. And so on this occasion, they say, there he is, let's kill him. But then Reuben, the oldest, intervenes. He said, no, uh, we, we we shouldn't kill him. Let's take him and throw him in this pit. And see, Reuben's plan was, we'll throw him in this pit. And then a little while after they kind of calmed down, I'll get him out. But Reuben's plan didn't exactly work out. Because the brothers happened to see a band of Midianite traders coming. And they say instead of killing him, let's pull him up out of there and let's get something for him. We'll just sell him. And they're on their way down to Egypt. And so they trade their brother for 20 shekels of silver. And then Reuben comes back and he discovers he's gone. And now he's beside himself. What are we going to do? What am I going to do? And I'm the oldest. So they cook up this scheme. We'll take his coat and we'll dip it in animal's blood and then we'll take it back to our father where I ask him, is this, is this your son's coat? And that's what they did. And what happens? Jacob sees that. He buys into the lie. And he mourns for his son because he thinks that he's dead. What happened to the truth? And Reuben, you knew the truth. And when you came back and you saw that they had pulled him up out of there and they were selling him? Why didn't you go after him? And Reuben, why did you go along with this scheme? And now you're caught up in this lie right along with them. And you stayed silent. And what's James say about that? We'll be studying that next week or two. 
James says, he that knows to do right and does not do it, to him it is a sin. You just went along with that lie. What happened to the truth? Here's the third example. Acts chapter 5, New Testament. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But I want to read to you from the end of Acts chapter 4 because I think it kind of helps set up what takes place in chapter 5. Keeping in mind, this is after Pentecost. The church has now come into being. But there are many that have traveled from many miles away. And they are still in the area of Jerusalem and they are needing to be taken care of. And so there are various ones that are selling lands and possessions and so forth and giving that, laying that at the apostles' feet so that their brothers and sisters might be taken care of. Now Acts chapter 4, verse 34. It says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as each as anyone had need. Now Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? He has this track of land, sees brothers and sisters in need, and he sells that and he takes all of it and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Help them out. And you know what the apostles do? They now call Joseph Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's awesome what you just did. And others hear about that. And they see that. And how impressed the apostles are with what he did. So Acts chapter 5, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. He sold it. He brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wasn't that good? Well, kind of, sort of. Kind of gets back to that half-truth, doesn't it? See, because what he did, along with his wife, Sapphira, if you read the rest of this, because she's going to die also. They conspired together. And they bring this money and they lay it at the apostles' feet and say, hey, we sold this land, here it is. But Peter knows that's not so. This is not all the money. This is only part of the money. And you know what? You could have kept it. It was under your control. That's fine. If you say, here's part of the money we want to help, but we need some of this money for what we need, and Peter would have been fine with that. But that's not what they did. They tried to make it look like they gave everything just like Barnabas. And you got to ask, Why'd you do that? And Peter says, You just lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. 
And when you look at that and you think, that's so deceptive. Why would you do that kind of thing? Let me ask you something. Have you ever known of someone who said they needed help, but they really didn't? And then later you found out about it? What did you think about that person? Thought, boy, that's deceptive, isn't it? Well, this is kind of the opposite side of that coin. Hey, I'm going to give you all of it. But you didn't really give all of it. You just wanted to make it look like. And you wanted to pretend like you really wanted to help. But you didn't. Does that help us understand a little bit our giving? That we should not give grudgingly? (laughs) But they wanted to make it look like. Because they wanted that to be the impression. So we got to ask ourselves... Why is the truth sometimes avoided? Think back to Abraham for just a moment. Abraham's going down to Egypt. This is looking kind of scary. They could hurt me. Okay, Sarah. Tell them you're my sister. So why did he do that? The reason why he did it is because he wanted to avoid physical pain. They could seriously hurt me or kill me. Sometimes we avoid the truth because we know the truth might be painful. But you know what's amazing about that? I mean, you could look at Abraham and say, well, you know, he was concerned about his life. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death. But we like to look at that and say, well, you know, he he was concerned about his his life. But most of the times, 99.9% of the time, when we're trying to avoid pain, it's not because our life's on the line, is it? When was the last time your life was threatened because of your Christianity? But you know what? I didn't want to get out of bed this morning. So I didn't come to worship. Just the pain of getting up, I wanted to avoid. Well, I didn't tell somebody else that I was a Christian because they may look at me funny. I don't want that pain. So sometimes... We avoid the pain and we give up on the truth. It's not that close yet, but it's coming April 15th, right? And it's tax time. Where's the truth? Well, that might be financially painful. So sometimes it's because we try to avoid the pain. But Reuben... Reuben, why did you go along with your brothers? Well, I saw the way they were looking at Joseph. And you know, if I don't go along with them, they may reject me the way they rejected him. That's kind of painful. That's kind of peer pressure that's kind of emotional pain and we don't like that either and Ananias and Sapphira why did you lie well that was pretty impressive and everyone was impressed by what Barnabas did and if I lie about this 
I may make a big splash. People may be impressed with me. So sometimes we hedge the truth, sometimes we lie because we want to make an impression. Sometimes it's to avoid pain. Sometimes it's to avoid rejection. Sometimes it's just simply to impress. And we abandon the truth. And what happened in each one of those scenarios when the truth was abandoned? Relationships got broken. People got hurt. Each and every time. So you have to apply the truth to preserve the body. God commands it. But he also wants it to be applied appropriately. So before we run around applying the truth, because some folks are anxious to apply the truth, aren't they? (laughs) You're caught up in sin and I want to be the one to tell you. (laughs) That's not the way God wants it applied. So I want to ask you some questions. When you start to think about applying the truth, think about this. What's your motive in speaking the truth to someone's life? Their life needs the truth. But what's your motive for wanting to speak that truth into their life. So I think it's plain from what Paul says in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse 25. He's not talking about just blurting it out. And he's not talking about not giving consideration to that other person. Because he says, speak truth each to his neighbor. It's a fellow Christian. And keep in mind that we are members of of one another. Remember the hand laying on the stove? Do you want to help? And it's to preserve the body. This is about protecting and about preserving. So you have to ask yourself, what's my motive if I'm going to speak the truth to this person? Is it in the interest of protecting them spiritually? Of preserving them as part of the body? Have you ever heard someone? Because I have. <laughs> Within the body of Christ, talking about somebody that's caught up in sin, and a preacher said, Get rid of them. Had he never read Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 25? So what's your motive? Just to point out sin? To somehow try to show, well, I'm better than you? Or, hey, you've got a weakness that I don't have a problem with? So before we speak the truth, we have to think about what's our motive. And if we're going to apply the truth, guess who we start with? Is your motive to look into that person's eyes and to honestly say, This may hurt. But I want to help. So what's your motive? And then the second thing, if you want to speak truth into someone's life, ask yourself this question. 
Am I going to be heard? Have you ever had someone come and tell you something and your immediate response, whether you say it or not, you might be thinking, and who are you? (laughs) So if you're going to speak truth, one of the things that you ought to ask yourself, am I going to be heard? Have I earned the right with this person to be heard by them? In other words, have you invested enough in the relationship that they will know that you have their best interest in mind? And then thirdly, is it my responsibility? What's your motive? Will you be heard? And then finally, is it your responsibility? So here's a thought to ask yourself when you decide to make that that move. Ask yourself this question. If I tell them the truth, am I willing to help them? Sometimes people want to point fingers and point out weaknesses and wrongs of others. But the question is, Are you willing to help that person? Matthew, the 23rd chapter, in about verses 1 through 3, Jesus speaks about the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, They sit in Moses' seat and they bind heavy burdens, but they will not lift one finger to help. So you have to ask yourself if you speak this truth to somebody, Are you willing to help? So go if you know your motive is pure. Go if you know you have the right to be heard. And go if you're willing to help. What's your motive? Will you be heard and are you willing to help? Truth is the glue that holds the body together. But God also wants to apply that glue with love. I want to extend the invitation this morning to any of all that are here. If you've never rendered obedience under the gospel in Christ to Christ, we'd encourage you to do that this very day. The invitation's yours while together we stand and while we sing.